All right, Isaiah chapter number 13 tonight, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see, lift ye up a banner upon the high mountains, exalt the voice unto them, shake the hand, that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for mine anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of the nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord and the weapons of His indignation to destroy the whole land. What I've sought to do tonight is look at each of these prophecies that are given to various Gentile nations and sort of try to draw from them a theme or a thought that I believe encompasses the revelation that God has given here. Now, of course, uh, preeminent upon the mind of the prophet Isaiah has been the threat of Babylon upon the children of Israel. This is particularly remarkable because when Isaiah wrote these things, Babylon was really not a threat. They were sort of a backwater. They were not really a, a significant military power. Assyria was the looming threat on the horizon. But under a miracle of predictive prophecy, uh, the prophet Isaiah, speaking the very words of God, turns the attention of God's people to this looming threat, far off maybe, but this threat on the horizon of the Babylonian Empire. To give you an idea of how little of a threat they were, after uh, Hezekiah recovers from his sickness, Hezekiah being the king of Judah, there are ambassadors sent from Babylon to uh, Judah, and he welcomes them in. <laughs> he shows them around. He says, come on in, let me show you where I keep all my pistols and all my diamonds and all my jewelry and everything. And the Bible tells us that, that Isaiah goes in and chides him and rebukes him in the name of the Lord and says there will come a day that these people are going to carry away everything that they've seen. And of course that came true uh, during the time of Nebuchadnezzar who was the emperor of Babylon. But Isaiah begins this series, this rapid fire sequence of prophecies in this chapter by once again bringing up the topic of Babylon. And I've used this phrase to summarize chapters 13 and 14, too big to fail. How many times have we heard this phrase in modern society? Just too big to fail. Uh, anytime they want to rob money out of your 401k or out of your bank account, they'll tell you that some industry or some uh, some entity is too big to fail, can't let it happen, we've got to prop them up with tax money and government money because it's just unthinkable. We couldn't even imagine what would happen if this bank failed or if this industry failed. Well, Babylon, though, they are not a big entity at the time of Isaiah's writing. Before it would all be said and done, Babylon would seem too big to fail. That, in fact, was one of the flaws in, uh, in Nebuchadnezzar. One of his personal failures is he walked through his uh, palace, he examined the hanging gardens, he looked at all of his domain, and he said, I've done this, I've created this, I've done all these glorious things. And God struck him with madness, took his mind from him to humble him. Because in Nebuchadnezzar's day, he wasn't saying anything most other people weren't saying. They were all saying, Babylon will never cease. Babylon will never fail. Babylon will never fall. But long before Babylon had ever gotten too big to fail, God had revealed that you can fail no matter how big you are. Failure is not a matter of our own strength or ability, but rather how we walk with the Lord. And so in chapters 13 and 14 we have Babylon falling and failing in spite of their strength and wealth. Chapter number 13 sort of deals with two tones. The first is an immense destruction that is spoken of. Now one of the things to keep in mind when you study the Old Testament prophets is very often there would be a transition in the midst of their prophecy. They'd be talking about something very present, very immediate, and then it becomes clear to you as you're reading it that somewhere along the line, we started talking about something that still has yet to be fulfilled. Uh, theologians would say that this would be a dual fulfillment, or sometimes they'd say there'll be a partial fulfillment uh, that was earlier and still a future fulfillment. And we have this in play in chapter number 13. Isaiah is seeing the fall and destruction of Babylon, and he begins looking at this immense destruction by describing the Lord's army in the first five verses. 
He says that it would be a group of nations called by the sovereignty and providence of God gathered that they might behold and participate in the fall and destruction of Babylon. Now, in a sense, this was fulfilled in that it was a Medo-Persian alliance that conquered Babylon. But I believe Isaiah is looking beyond this to a day when the empire of the Antichrist, the book of Revelation, is likened unto ancient Babylon. And you'll find this theme over and over again in these two chapters. There was Babylon of old, but there'll be Babylon afresh and anew. And it won't even necessarily sit on that same place. The Bible prophesies that Babylon, once destroyed, would not be rebuilt. But that language is being used figuratively for the empire of the Antichrist, being an empire of commercialism and idolatry and human or uh, self-worship. And so here we have prefigured not just the destruction of ancient Babylon by the Medo-Persians, but of the future Babylon of the Antichrist world empire. And that certainly will be a fall that is surrounded by many nations that are gathered from all over the world when we read in the unsealing of the sixth seal in the book of Revelation. So the Lord's army is spoken of in the first five verses. Looking at verses 6 through 13, we see the Lord's anger described. He says, How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And I'd remind you that term day of the Lord is not a generic term. That is a day that encompasses the tribulation and the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a generic term. It means something very specific. This part of the way we know Isaiah has moved past just the historical destruction of Babylon to something far in the future. He says, How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold. Speaking of the scarcity of survivors of this cataclysmic destruction, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of His fierce anger. Again, though certainly it was a devastating fall the night that the Medo-Persians climbed under the gates, uh, under the walls there in Babylon and sacked uh, the city, but it was nothing close to what Isaiah is speaking of here. He is looking forward to a coming day when that empire will crumble and when that uh, strength will fail. So we have an immense destruction spoken of in the first 13 verses. And then closing out chapter number 13, he speaks of that immediate destruction. So once again, he's transitioned from seeing something far in the future to something that is more immediate. Though Isaiah would not live to see it, it would be something that would take place within the next hundred years or so. It says in verse 17, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there, but wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall be there, and satyrs shall dance there, and the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant places, and her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. Here Isaiah is seeing the immediate destruction that would come upon Babylon, the geographical location when the Medo-Persians would invade and would sack the city. Moving to chapter 14, we have a second part to this song, this burden, this woe, this vision concerning the city of Babylon. But it doesn't as immediately focus on Babylon, although Babylon is certainly spoken of. But it begins to deal with sort of God's grand plan regarding not just Babylon of old, but the nations at large. And it begins in verses 1 through 3 with a promise of peace 
to the land of Israel. It says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. And the strangers shall be joined with them and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. And the people shall take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the Lord for servants and handmaids. And they shall take them captives whose captives they were. And they shall rule over their oppressors. And it shall come to pass in that day, in the day that the Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear and from the hard bondage wherein thou wast made to serve. Now, you study the history of the Word of God and it's apparent that uh, this was not fulfilled whenever the children of Israel came back from exile. If for no other reason, simply because it was only the southern uh, two tribes of Judah and Benjamin that predominantly came back, Israel was basically annihilated by the Assyrians. So this is once again looking forward to a day when God's going to bring them back in the land, not in bits and pieces, but as a whole. So we see the promise of peace in verses 1 through 3. And then verses 4 through 17, we have sort of a, a and I'm careful how I say this, in a literary sense it's high poetry. But I'm not meaning to suggest by that that it's not literal. It is, of course, literal. But there is a fascinating literary action or, or, or tactic or strategy that Isaiah uses here by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He begins to talk about the overthrowing of the king of Babylon. But it becomes apparent as we read that he's not just talking about the king of Babylon. He's talking about another king or another god of this world that is spoken of. And here we have some of the most fascinating scripture in all the word of God. It details for us and discloses to us some things that reach far back into time, some things we couldn't know otherwise, and reveal some things about God's plan. Verse number 4, the Bible says this, that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how hath the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hindereth. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. Yea, the fir trees rejoice at thee, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since thou art laid down, no feller is come against us. You didn't know feller was King James Bible word. You say, well, that feller right over there. Amen. That's not what it means. It means somebody cuts down trees. Verse 9 says this, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. All they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials. The worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. Now, up to this point, we could say, well, it's talking about the human king of Babylon, and it's using poetic language to describe the shame and humiliation that upon his death he would experience when he woke up in hell and realized he wasn't invincible. But when we come to verse number 12, we learn it's not just speaking of an earthly king, but it's reaching beyond that and speaking of a day when God is going to lay a far more fiercer foe low and uh, kick him off of his throne. The Bible says, verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will set also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. Time would fail us to go through in detail everything going on here, but what you have is an account of the fall of Satan. Uh, how that he in pride exalted himself against the Lord and sought to exalt his throne above God's throne. We have here the corrupting through pride of this once beautiful creation of God that has by sin and disobedience and rebellion been corrupted into the wicked one that we know today as the devil or Satan. Here he is called Lucifer, the son of the morning. Goes on to say this, uh, verse number 15, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit, they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? I encourage you in your own time to read the remainder of this portion. We'll have to skip past some of it for time's sake. 
But suffice it to say, there's coming a day that not just the evil rulers of this world, but the evil ruler of this world is going to be destroyed. He's going to be sent to the same hell that he sent men to. He's going to have the same chains put on him that he put on others. There's coming a day that he's going to have to march in shame and disgrace past the very people whom he has deceived. I'll just say this and move on. I'm glad God wins and the devil loses. Amen? Verse number 24, there's a shift in sort of tone and topic here because Isaiah comes back to the present day and begins to talk about God dealing with their immediate enemy, the Assyrian. He says in verse 24, The Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land. And upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. For the Lord of hosts hath purpose, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? Now, you may look at that and say, Well, preacher, I thought we were talking about Babylon. Why are we talking about Assyria all of a sudden? Because... The Lord has just disclosed that the same devil that has put people in bondage and has held low nations and has taken many lives and with much cruelty ruled in this world is going to be destroyed. And he points then to the soon coming destruction of the Assyrians as a reminder that just as he's going to break the yoke of the Assyrians, and this is the key phrase that is used here in this text, he says in verse 26, this is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. In other words, he's saying this, one day the Babylonians are going to come, they're going to put you in chains. But I'm going to break the Assyrians' chains. And one day I'll break the devil's chains. And one day I'll break every chain. And so when that day comes, don't fret. Because if you'll turn to me, I'll listen to you. I'll turn to you. I'll have mercy on you. And I'll bring you back in the land. He's using the Assyrians as a case text for his power and for his ability. Verse number 28 marks another change sort of in this passage. It says this, In the year that King Ahaz died was this burden. Rejoice not thou, whole Palestina, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, a cockatrice being a type of serpent. And his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. And the firstborn of the poor shall feed, and the needy shall lie down in safety. And I will kill thy root with famine, and he shall slay thy remnant. Howl, O gate! Cry, O city, thou whole Palestina art dissolved. For there shall come from the north a smoke, and none shall be alone in his appointed times. What shall one then answer the messengers of the nation? Shall, that the Lord hath founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it. This is fascinating scripture. What he's saying is this. After having given all of these truths and all these promises of comfort, You'll be tempted to believe that there's no need to depend on it. But as soon as I destroy the Assyrians, there'll come a far fiercer... Uh, uh, boy, I, I, I'm going to say that five times fast. A far fiercer foe that will arise, and that will be the Babylonians. He describes smoke rising from the north, and of course that's exactly how Nebuchadnezzar invaded the land. That seemed to be how everybody but Egypt invaded the land. They all would go around the, the Petra Mountains and come down north through the land... And invade, that's how uh, the Assyrians did it, and that's how the Babylonians did it. And what he's reminding them of is this. I've delivered you, I've kept you, I've protected you. The only reason you're delivered and kept and protected is because I have been with you. If you turn from me, there's still many foes at the gates. There's still many dangers at hand. And what he's trying to do is get them not to boast in this moment of reprieve that they will one day enjoy against the Lord. So in chapters 13 and 14, we have this, we might say, loose collection of prophecies that that relate to Babylon, but really deal more broadly with the world's, uh, with the Lord's plan for for the world at large. Beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 15, the attention is turned away from Babylon to another uh, people, another nation, and it's the nation of Moab. The Bible says, and we'll begin in verse number 1, and I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's just read a few verses down through here, and they'll summarize chapter 15, then we'll move on. Look with me at verse 1. It says, The burden of Moab, because in the night, our of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. 
Because in the night, Kerr of Moab is laid waste and brought silence. Ar and Kerr were two chief cities in the land of Moab. Verse 3 says this, In their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloth. On the tops of their houses and in their streets, everyone shall howl, weeping abundantly. Verse 7 says this, Therefore the abundance they have gotten, and that which they have laid up, shall they carry away to the brook of the willows. They'd have to flee and run with the things they possess. Verse 9 says this, For the waters of diamond shall be full of blood. Diamond was a river in the land of Moab. For I will bring more upon diamond, lions upon him that escapeth of Moab, and upon the remnant of the land. Now, I will be transparent with you. When you read that, you go, huh? <laughs> and I'll even be honest enough to tell you, when I read that, I went, huh? <laughs> we read this passage of Scripture, and, and I'm reminded of an important truth in Bible study. I'm a dispensationalist. What I mean by being a dispensationalist is I believe that God has dealt with man in different ways throughout different periods in human history. Some things never change. Uh, but some things do change. And that God would reveal Himself in different degrees to humanity, always in a progressive manner, meaning that always they knew more about God later than they knew in a former way. But there were certain things expected of you and I that were not expected of Adam, because we know more of who God is. Adam may have walked with Him in the cool of the day, but we live with Him in our life, and He lives within us, and we have His Bible, and we know much more than Adam ever knew. And so certain things are expected of us. But that does bring with it another important truth, that as you study the Bible and recognize the distinctions that God has made, we have to acknowledge that all the Bible, though it may be written for us, it is not all written to us. And as such, we must accept this truth. There are certain portions of the Bible that are more relevant to us than other portions of the Bible. Say, preacher, could that possibly be true? It's all the Word of God. Yes, and all these things were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world come. But you'll also never tell me that the plain spoken instruction in the Pauline epistles about how to operate and function in this New Testament dispensation of grace bear upon our lives in the same way that, for instance, the book of Leviticus would with all of its statutes and ceremonies and rituals. Now, I'm not telling you not to read the book of Leviticus. It's a treasure. And there's much that points to Christ and His finished work on Calvary. But when we come to passages of Scripture like this, we must recognize that though the Word of God is timeless, it was written at a time for a reason. And this prophecy being given to the land of Moab, if you were living in the land of Moab in the day of Isaiah, there would undoubtedly be things that will be difficult for me or you to unriddle. And answers to questions that you and I cannot answer that to them living in that day would have been transparently true. By the same token, there are portions of this Bible that's going to make a lot more sense during the millennial reign than they do to us where we sit in this day. And so we're left looking at this passage of Scripture and asking ourselves, how and in what way can this admonish, exhort, and encourage me? What can I learn and what can I draw from? I'll tell you that not even the most astute historians can put a pin on a map for every single place listed in this passage of Scripture. I'll even tell you that historians really, I'm talking about biblical historians, can't point to the moment in which these things were fulfilled. Here's what we do know. We do know that Moab at one time existed. We do know it does not exist today. We know from our text here in front of us that its destruction was not by incident or happenstance, but by the providence of God and His judgment being meted out upon them. But there's going to be many things, not just here, but in the following chapters that you might come up to me and say, Preacher, what does this mean? I have to say, I don't know. We might get to heaven before we find out what the answer is to the question that you may have. But you say, okay, preacher, well, what can I draw from it? Well, I, I'm reminded when I think about the people of Moab about their, their beginnings. I don't know if you know this, but Moab, the Moabites, along with the Ammonites, were, were a group of people that actually came from the, the lewd and, and inappropriate interaction relationship between Lot, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and his daughter. And so, in a sense, the people of Moab, the Moabites, the Ammonites, they are distant blood kin of the children of, of Israel. In other words, they're related to them, but they don't really have a relationship with them. And let me go a step further and say this. They are related to the people of God, but they don't have a relationship with the God of those people. Say, so, preacher, what can I learn from chapters 15 16 of Isaiah? Well, here's what struck my heart. There's a danger in being related without relationship. 
In other words, being tangentially around the things of God ain't the same thing as knowing God. Uh, Having even a pedigree or a legacy. You've heard me say it from the pulpit before. Hey, God's got no grandchildren. You're either a child of God or you're not. And when we see the destruction of Moab written about here, we're reminded that it is not the blood relationship that makes the difference, but rather it's the relationship by His blood that makes the difference. And so notice a few thoughts with me. The verses we've read detail the punishment of Moab. But go over to chapter 16 and see how precious and and merciful of a God we have. And verse number 1 of chapter 16 begins this way. It says, Send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be that as a wandering bird cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday. Hide the outcast, beray not him that wandereth. Let mine outcast dwell with thee. And by the way, whenever the children of Israel were traveling through the wilderness on their way to Canaan, the Moabites refused them safe passage and refused them protection. God now tells them, let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at an end. The spoiler ceaseth, the oppressors are consumed out of the land, and in mercy shall the throne be established. And he shall sit upon it in truth, this being a messianic prophecy of the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, when one day he'll sit on the throne in Jerusalem. In mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. Here in these verses we see the plea to Moab. You say, well, preacher, what's the significance here? God's saying you don't have to go that way. Man, I'm glad to know we may start wrong, but we don't have to end wrong. He's pleading with them. He tells them to send the lamb to the ruler of the land because Moab at one time, uh, that was sort of the terms of their relationship during the days when David sat upon the throne with the land of, of, of Israel is that they raised lambs that they would then sell and send to the land of Israel. And what he's saying is reestablish diplomatic ties. Get right with the people of God. Get right with the God of those people. Make your life right. He says to let your shadow be as the night at the noonday sun. He's saying walk small. Don't be prideful. Humble yourself before God and he's saying you better do it because the things that God values you are values are mercy and truth and judgment and righteousness. We see the plea to Moab but then in verse 6 sadly Moab did not listen. It says this, we have heard the pride of the pride of Moab. He is very proud even of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. Therefore shall Moab howl for Moab. Everyone shall howl for the foundations of Ker-Hareseth shall ye mourn. Surely they are stricken. In other words, Moab could have turned, but they did not turn. Down in verse number 13, we find that some time had evidently passed between the giving of that prophecy. But now... We see the present judgment on Moab. He says, this is the word that the Lord hath spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord hath spoken, saying within three years, as the years of an hireling and the glory of Moab shall be contemned with all the great multitude and the remnant shall be very small and feeble. In other words, it's not enough just to have to be related. There must be a personal relationship with God. And the sad story of Moab is they were so close in some ways and yet refuse to humble themselves before God. Look with me in chapter number 17. The prophet turns his attention to this uh, confederacy between Syria and Ephraim. Now remember, that's very prominent at this time in Israel's history. At this time, Syria and Ephraim are aligned and they are pressuring Israel to join their confederacy against the Assyrians, not to trust in the Lord, but instead to join uh, their allegiance and to join and become an ally of theirs. But before they ever even were destroyed, God pronounced their destruction upon them. Verse number 1 of chapter number 17, we'll read verses 1 through 4, says the burden of Damascus, behold Damascus, and that's the capital of Syria, is taken away from being a city. And it shall be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aroer are forsaken. They shall be for flocks which shall lie down and none shall make them afraid. Talking about the sheep that they'll lay down. There won't be anyone to disturb them because everyone will be dead. Everybody will be gone. The fortress also shall cease from Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is the name of Israel in their rebellion. 
after they uh, divided from the southern kingdom, God would often use that word Ephraim to describe them when they were stubborn and, and, and self-willed and rebellious against God. It says, The fortress also shall cease from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. They shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. And in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. I titled this little portion, Guilt by Association. Ephraim didn't have to go that direction. They didn't have to be Ephraim. They could have been Israel. But they chose instead to ally themselves with a nation that was doomed to destruction. We see the ruin of Syria and Ephraim in verses 1 through 4. Verses 6 through 8 begin to talk about the remnant of Israel. And here, once again, we sort of leap forward into some things that regard the millennial kingdom and the promises of God. It says, yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it. As the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the utmost bough, four or five in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord's using imagery here, saying there'd be just a small remnant that would be left over. At that day shall a man look to his Maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. And he shall not look to the altars, the works of his hands, neither shall respect that which his fingers have made, either the groves or the images." In other words, he is, even in the midst of this declaration of destruction, he's saying, don't forget Israel, I've not forgotten my promises. One day I'm going to bring you back into the land. One day I'm going to set you back where you belong. Verses 9 through 11 give a rebuke to Israel in their self-will. He says, (coughs) excuse me, in verse 9, in that day shall his strong cities be as a forsaken bow and an uppermost branch which they left because of the children of Israel, and there shall be desolation. Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation, and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants, and shalt set it with strange slips, speaking of a, a, a grafted piece of, of, land, of, of, of a plant, just a clipping of it, it says in verse 11, In the day thou shalt thou make thy plant to grow, and in the morning shalt thou make thy seed to flourish, but the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. Now again, highly figurative language being used here, but what he's saying is it'd be like a person who will plant a garden and not even get to rejoice in the harvest. That's how quickly their destruction would fall upon them. They'll put out their crops and won't live to see the harvest come. Of course, this was fulfilled when the Assyrians fell on the northern kingdom of Israel and carried them away into captivity. But it doesn't end on that negative note. (laughs) Verse 12 begins and talks about the removal of Israel's foes. One of the admittedly bewildering things about studying this portion of the Bible, you have to be nimble. You have to recognize there's going to be times it's going to talk about something right now and then it's going to talk about something in a little while, and then it's going to talk about something that's going to happen way in the future. Uh, but in doing so, you say, well, preacher, why would God do that that way? Because God is predominantly in the Old Testament speaking to Israel about things regarding Israel. And God's dealings with Israel, sadly, tragically, have been interrupted since the cross of Calvary, since their prince was slain, since they rejected him who was their Messiah. And so many of these things ideally would have had quicker fulfillment. But because of their rebellion, disobedience, their rejection of the Savior, many things postponed not outside of God's foreknowledge and awareness, but outside of their comprehension, far beyond the day when it sadly should have taken place and did not. And so verse 12 begins to talk about that. It says, Woe to the multitude of many people, which make a noise like the noise of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nation shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off, and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind, and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. And behold, at evening tide trouble, and before the morning he is not. This is the portion of them that spoil us, and the lot of them that rob us. Again, we have something that I think has sort of a dual fulfillment. When he talks about the water rushing over and through the land of Israel, it cannot help but remind us of the prophecies Isaiah has already given about Assyria being like a flooded river that comes up to the neck even of Judah. And how that God would cut them off in a moment, would in an hour destroy them. That they would go to bed at night expecting to besiege Jerusalem again the next day, and they would be struck and laid low. And of course, that's exactly what happened. 185,000 Assyrians destroyed in one night. 
But just like in the previous chapters, God's saying, what I'm going to do to the Assyrians, I'm going to do to all those that are the enemies of God. He's saying all these are just pictures and they happened in reality historically, but they are prefiguring a day when God is going to do this on a broader scale. And that's why he says this is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. He's saying you, you line up against me, this is what happens. Man, I'm glad God's a winner in all this. I'm glad he's in control. Look with me at chapter 18. Chapter number 18, we have a prophecy regarding... Uh, I think the land of Ethiopia. Now, you may say, well, preacher, why do you think and not know? Because this is how it begins. It says, woe to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Now, commentators take two perspectives about this passage. Some people take a dart and throw it at a globe, and wherever it lands, that's what they say the land shadowing with wings is. <laughs> You can read commentaries, and man, you'll find everything. You'll find people say it's America, people say it's Great Britain, people say that it was Egypt, people say it was Ethiopia, people say, some of them say it was even Assyria or Babylon, even though they're to the east. They do some some interesting mental gymnastics to do that. But the truth is, we can't say definitively what this land was. Undoubtedly, when this prophecy was uttered, just in the cultural and social context, they probably knew exactly who it was. But I believe it to be Ethiopian. You'll see here in a few moments why that is. Predominantly, though, this passage has to do with an alliance being formed. And, of course, when the Assyrians were threatening the children of Israel, one of the foolish mistakes that Hezekiah made, instead of trusting in the Lord, he sued for an alliance with Egypt and with Ethiopia. He thought that somehow with their support and their armies, they could fight off the Assyrian threat. But of course, that's not at all what happened. Assyria didn't, or Ethiopia didn't deliver them. Egypt didn't deliver them. The Lord delivered them. And so we have almost a figurative telling of that story here in this passage. Notice verses 1 and 2 deal with the forming of that alliance. Look at verse 2. That sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the waters, saying, Go ye swift messengers to a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. Speaking of Israel when it speaks of them. Terrible at the beginning, but been put through the ringer. They've been scattered and peeled and meted out and trotted down and curled and cubed and julianned and everything else by the nations around them. In other words, saying they would form this alliance with them. But notice the foregoing of this alliance. God doesn't depend on that to deliver them. Verse 3 says, All ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, see ye, when he lifteth up an ensign on the mountains, and when he bloweth a trumpet, hear ye. In other words, saying, pay attention to what God does. For so the Lord said unto me, I will take my rest, and I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. In other words, God's saying He's going to send relief. He's going to think about His place, and He's going to send them relief. For afore the harvest, when the bud is perfect, and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They shall be left together under the fowls of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth, and the fowls shall summer upon them, and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. He's describing here the destruction of the Assyrian army and saying, I didn't need Ethiopia and I didn't need Egypt to do any of those things. And that's what he discloses in verse 7 is the folly of that alliance. He says, In that time shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts of a people scattered and peeled and from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden underfoot whose land the rivers have spoiled to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. Now, possibly this could have some future fulfillment. I can see language that would hint at that. But I think the most immediate fulfillment is God saying, you have forged this alliance, but you never had to do that. All you had to do was call unto me, and I've titled this chapter Alliance Without Obedience. You know, it's folly in our life to think that we can in friendships and in alliances and in confederacies get the help and strength that we can only get from the Lord. The Lord shows He didn't need any of those nations. He could deliver His people Himself. Turn to chapter 19 with me. and I want you to notice this prophecy. The Bible says in verse number 1, the burden of Egypt 
Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt. And the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of. Here, of course, it's obvious, is a prophecy concerning Egypt. That ancient nation of old, that military behemoth that had waned in influence and power and prominence during these days of Isaiah. And God pronounces a woe upon them. But this one's a little different than the other ones in that it doesn't end in a negative way. It begins with God declaring that He's going to order Egypt's destruction. But it doesn't end that way. It actually ends with God one day restoring Egypt. You may have never heard this before restoring Egypt, and then actually playing a prominent role in the Millennial Kingdom. And so I've titled this chapter this, Second Chances. Man, I'm glad we've got a God of second chances. He describes the present ruin of Egypt, and verse 1 reveals it will be a spiritual affliction. Oh, there will be earthly foes that hold swords and shields and spears, but they'll be destroyed because God will call for their destruction. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar fulfilled this uh, whenever he defeated Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish. But it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar that did that. It was God that had called for their destruction. But even before that would happen, Egypt would be sort of consumed from the inside out. And he describes a few things. Verses 2 and 3, he describes social division. He says, I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and they shall fight every one against his brother and every one against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof. And I will destroy the counsel thereof, and they shall seek to the idols and to the charmers and to them that have familiar spirits and to wizards. Verse number 4 describes political oppression. It says, the Egyptians will I give over into the hand of a cruel Lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And by the way, this happened uh, during this time in Israel, in Egypt's history. They fell to bitter infighting. Uh, one of their uh, kings died. One of their pharaohs died that had held the land together. And after he died, they fell into civil war. And it wasn't until a, a, a sort of a strong man, a, a military man, came to the throne and, and brought the land back to heal. But in doing so, he showed much cruelty upon the people. Verse 5 begins to describe financial depression they would experience. It says, The waters shall fail from the sea, and the river shall be wasted and dried up. You know anything about Egypt? You know their entire economy centered around the Nile River. Uh, verses 7 through 9 go on to describe more. It says, The paper reads by the brooks, by the mouth of the brooks, and everything sown by the brooks shall wither, be driven away, and be no more. A big part of their commercial enterprise was the making of papyrus when paper had not yet been invented that people could write upon. Verse number 8, The fishers also shall mourn, and all they that cast angle into the brooks shall lament, and they that spread nets upon the water shall languish. I've had some fishing days like that. Amen. Uh, verse 9 says, Moreover, they that work in fine flax and they that weave networks shall be confounded. You can read more. There's more there. But it all sums up to the same thing, that God would cripple them economically. Then finally, he describes intellectual confusion. Verses 11 and 14. Uh, he says, Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Zoan being one of their chief cities. The council of the wise counselors of Pharaoh is become brutish. How say ye unto Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. Verse 14, he says, this is why they were confused. The Lord hath mingled a perverse spirit in the midst thereof, and they have caused Egypt to err in every work thereof, as a drunken man staggereth in his vomit. I don't want to go too far down this road, but have you ever wondered if our government's incompetence isn't incompetence? Yes. Have you ever wondered if, in fact, it's that God is setting things up? <laughs> Ever wondered, we look at it and we say, why can't they get anything right? Maybe there's a reason they can't get anything right. Even in ancient Egypt, he brought about intellectual confusion. But it doesn't end there. God actually says there's not only a present ruin of Egypt, but there's a promised restoration of Egypt. Verse number 16 describes it. He says, in that day shall Egypt be like unto women, and it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shaketh over it. And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. Every one that maketh mention thereof shall be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he hath determined against it. Here Isaiah is looking far beyond that present day. And he is seeing the day at the end of the tribulation when God has shaken the world and God has set Israel back in her place when no longer would Egypt view Judah as easy prey, but instead would fear Judah and fear her God as well. 
He describes the fear of Egypt. Verse 18, he describes the fellowship that Egypt would have with the people of God. It says, In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts. One shall be called the city of destruction. I don't have time to get into it, but there's an interesting word play happening there. There was an ancient city of Egypt that in Hebrew was very similar to the word destruction. And what God's saying is these cities that had been destroyed are going to be populated once again. Verse 19, he talks about Egypt's faith in the true God. He says, in that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors and he shall send them a savior and a great one and he shall deliver them. You say, preacher, who's that savior? He's our savior. And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord. And He shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. It's interesting that phrase, they shall return to the Lord. I was talking to my wife on the way in. I didn't know they ever knew the Lord. But the earliest records of Egyptian culture and religion show them to have at one time been purely monotheistic. Very likely there was a time, way back in the dawn of time, I'm talking about probably, possibly before the flood, possibly, uh, certainly before the days of Job and of Abraham, when they had known who the true God was. How far Egypt has wandered from that time. They have degraded in their worship. They began worshiping the sun and kept just degrading further till now they worship a bug, the scarab. Uh, They are the very picture of what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, who when they knew not God, or when they knew God, they refused to worship Him as God and instead worship the creature more than the Creator. But I'm glad even for Egypt, I'm glad it's not too late. He says there's coming a day, I'm going to restore them back. Verse 23 describes their freedom. It says, in that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptian shall serve with the Assyrians. At this time, these two peoples were mortal enemies. They hated each other. Verses 24 through 25 describe the favor they would enjoy from the Lord in that day. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. We have a gracious God. We have a God of second chances. Chapter number 20 And this sort of ties together. And you'll see here why I mentioned Ethiopia back in chapter number 18. Chapter number 20 is one of the most interesting and and just be honest, weird chapters in the whole Bible. Look at it with me. We'll read the entirety of it. In the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it. At the same time spake the Lord by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins. And put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and Ethiopia. Upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians prisoners and the Ethiopians captives young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks and covered to the shame of Egypt. They shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and of Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation, whither we flee for help uh, to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And how shall we escape? A weird chapter of Scripture. But it forms sort of a, a trinity of passages with chapter 18, 19, and 20. And I believe when the Bible talks about in chapter 18, the land shadowing with wings beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, I think it's probably talking about some smaller nations that we would have considered being a part of Ethiopia, uh, but that at that time existed in some sort of independence that joined together in that confederacy with Israel and with Egypt. And here in chapter 20, the Lord is wrapping up that narrative. He's getting ready to move on uh, to another theme and thought in chapter 21. But notice two thoughts with me here. Think with me for a moment about the peculiar instruction. God tells Isaiah, and, and, and you know, commentators soften this. They say, well, when it says naked, it don't really mean naked. I don't know about you, but naked means naked, all right? Uh, and the Bible says with their buttocks uncovered, I don't know what that means to you, but it sounds like naked to me. Not just naked, it sounds like naked, all right? 
I think that God called Isaiah to do this. God ain't calling you to do this. God ain't calling them people down to Walmart to do this either, all right? But in this very special situation, God had called his prophet to do this unusual thing. So, preacher, what does that teach you and me? Two thoughts. One, whatever God's asked you to do, it's not the hardest thing God's ever asked anyone to do. Oh, preacher, God wouldn't ask me to do something that difficult. God asked Isaiah to do this. (laughs) You'd be amazed what God might call on you to do. But second, it reminds me of this, that our whole life is a walking testimony. Our whole life, not just what we say, but what we wear, where we go, how we live. Everyone's watching the way we live. So we see a peculiar instruction, and then I won't take the time, but the chapter ends with this powerful illustration. That what God had called on Isaiah to do would be but a type of what he would do to Egypt and to Ethiopia. Look with me in chapter 21. We're hastening on. Don't forget, some of y'all showed up late and I couldn't start till 10 minutes after, okay? So I've got a little bit extra time. Chapter number 21 uh, is an interesting chapter. It doesn't focus on one nation. It actually focuses on three people groups. And in these three people groups, we find that God dismantles the thing that each of these three people groups were trusting in them to vouchsafe and give them refuge against God's judgment. Once again, Babylon makes an appearance in verses 1 and 2 and 5 through 10. And I've titled this chapter, Nowhere to Hide. God's been pronouncing judgment. And people think, well, that's all right, we'll hide from His judgment. But in this chapter, He reveals there's nowhere to hide from His judgment. The only place to hide from God's judgment is in God. That's the only place to hide from God's judgment. If you're going anywhere else... You're not going to be able to hide from it. And so he talks about how we cannot, in Babylon, we can't hide in strength. Verses 1 and 2. He calls them the desert of the sea, the burden of the desert of the sea. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it cometh from the desert, from a terrible land. A grievous vision is declared unto me. The treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, and the spoiler spoileth. Go up Elam, that's an ancient name for the Persians. Go up Elam, besiege O Media. All the sign thereof have I made to cease. He's describing how the Medo-Persians would destroy the Babylonians. Verse 5, we have almost a glimpse into that night when Babylon was destroyed, when they came under the gates during Belshazzar's feast. He says, prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat. Drink, arise ye princes, and anoint the shield. In other words, he's commanding all of those drunk priests, uh, uh, nobles and princes. He's saying, you better get up, shake off your hangover, and grab your sword. The enemy's coming under the gates. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Go, set a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. And this watchman, it says, he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses and a chariot of camels, and he hearkened diligently with much heed. And he cried, A lion! A lion, my Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set in my ward whole nights, and behold, there cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And this is what the chariot men answered. This is what the messenger said. He answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the graven images of her gods he hath broken under the ground. O oh, my threshing and the corn of my floor, that which I have heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. Much we could say about it. But what he's saying is this. Babylon and all of her strength couldn't hide from God's judgment. We move on. Uh, Verse 11 and 12 gives us a picture of Edom. It says, the burden of Duma. He calleth to me out of Seir. Now, Seir was a mountain in the land of Edom. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And the Edomites, they boasted in their mountainous strongholds. They lived in the Petra Mountains in a place where... Their, their fortresses and their holdfasts were impenetrable. And they never flourished as a people. Uh, they were eventually destroyed, as God prophesies here. But they basically were like a mountain tribe. There's mountain folk. They lived up there. Nobody could get to them. And we have this interesting little prophecy. The burden of Duma. He calleth to me out of Seir. And the picture is of two watchmen. One on the wall of, of Judah and one on the wall of Edom. One in one nation, one in another nation, and these watchmen close enough that they're talking to each other. And the first watchman says that he calleth to me out of Seir, the Edomite, called to me. And this is what he said, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? In other words, how much time is left in the night? The watchman said, the morning cometh, and also the night. If ye will inquire, inquire ye, return, come. 
It's a picture of the Edomites essentially saying this, how much time is left in the night? How much time till God's judgment? How much time till the things prophesied come to pass? And the watchman on the wall of Judah says, morning's coming for us, but night's coming for you. And he's saying, you ought to go ahead and come and repent and get your heart right. If you're going to inquire of the Lord and find out what's wrong, you better return. You better come to the Lord now. And it's a reminder that we cannot hide in strongholds. So, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, in the things in life that we think can vouchsafe us. We think if we have a big bank account or if we're fit and healthy or if we've got family around us, we've got all these things, somehow we can hide. But i got news for you. If the Edomites couldn't hide in their strongholds, we can't hide in our strongholds. Verses 13 through 17 begin to describe a people called the Arabians. It says, The burden upon Arabia. In the forest in Arabia shall ye lodge, O ye traveling companions of Dedanim. The inhabitants of the land of Tema brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the grievousness of war. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Within a year, according to the years of an hireling, and all the glory of Kedar shall fail. And the residue of the number of archers, the mighty men of the children of Kedar, shall be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel hath spoken it. The picture is of Arabians who, flush with wealth and prosperity, had been the refuge for other people fleeing from the judgment of God. And they began to think because of their wealth and prosperity that if they could help and, and assuage others, that somehow they could save themselves. And I would say it this way, we can't hide from God's judgment in sustenance. You can't be wealthy enough to avoid God's judgment. He doesn't just destroy the body and He doesn't just destroy the bank account. He reaches and grabs hold of the soul as well. So chapter 21 reveals there's nowhere to hide. Look with me at chapter 22. Man, you're being so good and patient. You're listening fast and I'm, I'm trying to go fast. Chapter number 22 is divided into two portions. The first 14 verses deal with Judah, uh, blind to the impending judgment of God when the Babylonians would fall upon them. He described, or I'm sorry, not the Babylonians, but the Assyrians would fall upon them. He says in verses 1 through 3 and 6 through 8, he describes the stirring of the people in the land of Judah. He says the burden of the valley of vision. He's describing Judah and more particularly Jerusalem there. But he says, What aileth thee now that thou art wholly gone up to the housetops? Thou that art full of stirs, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Thy slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All thy rulers are fled together. They are bound by the archers, all that are found, and they are bound together which have fled from far. Now some of that may seem unfamiliar to us, but he's describing people that are watching the march of the Assyrian army through the land of Judah to the city of Jerusalem. And they came and, and climbed up on top of their houses and watched this procession marching through the land. Verse 6 says this, Elam, another, again, ancient name for Persia because the Persians were confederate uh, at that time uh, with the Assyrians. Elam bare the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen and Kerr uncovered the shield. It shall come to pass that thy choicest valleys shall be full of chariots and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. And he discovered the covering of Judah and thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. The picture is of all of these people in the land of Judah watching this army march through. And just as God prophesied, it's exactly what happened. The Assyrians marched through under Tiglath-Pileser and took 46 fenced cities in the land of Judah. And God's describing the Judeans, instead of fleeing, they're just standing on their houses, just assuming there's no danger about to befall them. He describes the stirring of the people. Verses 9-11 through 11 describes the self-reliance of the people. It says, "...ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David..." That that they are many, and ye gathered together the waters of the lower pool, and ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses have ye broken down to fortify the wall. Ye made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. It's describing Hezekiah's siege preparations whenever the Assyrians were marching close to the city. And it's saying, you know, you're preparing for a siege, but you're not looking to the Lord. He describes in verses 12 through 14 the stubbornness of the people. He says, And in that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth. In other words, He begged you to turn to Him. And this is what He found. Behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. And it was revealed in mine ears by the Lord of hosts, Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till ye die, saith the Lord God of hosts. 
Another sad picture of Israel and their self-reliance and stubbornness and unwillingness to turn to the Lord. Now, the end of chapter 22 makes a, it takes a marked turn. And God points to two men that were in the uh, council in, in sort of the court of, of King Hezekiah. One of them was the treasurer and another was a man by the name of Eliakim that would replace him. Now, there's some practical application we should make, but the main application to this is that in these two men, as God is considering all of his workings amongst humanity, we find types of both the Antichrist and Christ and the day of the Lord. We see in these passages a tale of of two nails, and, and, and in verses 15 through 19, you'll see why I say that here in a moment, we have a rotten leader, a man by the name of Shebna, that is described, and he figures for us the Antichrist. It says, Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Go get thee unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna, which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here, and whom hast thou here, that thou hast showed thee, hewed thee out a sepulcher here, as he that heweth him out a sepulcher on high, and that graveth an habitation for himself in a rock. Shebna was a very greedy, very self-involved, very prideful man, who had actually gone to the sepulchers of kings, and had hewed him out his own sepulcher, his own monument there, to be buried there, because he thought he was that important, and was that prominent in the land. And God rebukes his prideful spirit and his self-glory. He says, Behold, the Lord will carry thee away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover thee. He will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There shalt thou die, and there the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house. Now, reading up this point, you might say, Well, preacher, I don't really see the Antichrist there. Yeah, but you'll see Christ in the next few verses. And in that context, what you'll see is that what God's saying is that Shebna, in many ways, prefigured the Antichrist through, in his own pride, would set up a kingdom as his own monument, as his own glory, and God's going to take him and throw him out like a ball into a large country. Look at this second leader, not just a rotten leader, but there's a righteous leader here, this man named Eliakim, uh, the son of Hilkiah, and, and he is a type of Christ. It says, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and the key of the house of David while I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shall shut and none shall open and I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house you know we ain't talking about Eliakim anymore and they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house the offspring and the issue all the vessels of small quantity from the vessels of cups even all the vessels of flagons in other words it's saying that this man Eliakim would become a cornerstone in the land of, of Judah, that he would become a burden bearer. But it looks beyond him to a day when a more righteous leader, when a Savior will come and will be fastened as a nail in a sure place. I'm glad, listen, once he sits on the throne, nobody's kicking him off. So we see in this passage this tale of two nails. We have one chapter left. Man, you've been so good and patient. Thank you. We'll just notice it briefly and then be done tonight. And it concerns the ancient maritime city of Tyre. Now, Tyre, if you're not a student of history, may not ring any bells to you, but there was a time that Tyre was one of the glorious cities of the ancient world. It was literally a a commercial mecca where ships would come from all over the world to go and to trade in the land of Tyre. You'll often in the Bible hear Tyre and Sidon spoken about in the same in the same breath. And Sidon was the older city, and, and Tyre was sort of the daughter city. Tyre was an ancient city that was actually built uh, part on land and, and part at sea. And here in verse 23, we have a prophecy concerning the destruction of Tyre. But like Egypt... Interestingly, it also invokes some millennial promises about their restoration. Notice a few things here and we'll be done. In verse 1, we see the promise of Tyre's destruction. The burden of Tyre, and this is what it says, How ye ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no entering in, from the land of Kittim, it is revealed to them. The land of Kittim was a name for the Babylonians. And the Babylonians would go on under Nebuchadnezzar to mostly destroy the city of Tyre. It wasn't ultimately destroyed until Alexander the Great came and destroyed it, just completely annihilated it. But Nebuchadnezzar uh, destroyed it in large portion before it was rebuilt after uh, after he fell. And so here in verse 1, we have the promise of Tyre's destruction. Now, I, I hate to do it. I don't want to take the time to, but I've got to say... In many ways, when you look at these three ancient nations, 
Egypt, Babylon, and Tyre. You have a picture of three different things that pull on the believer. In Egypt, we find sinfulness, darkness, wickedness in its nascent state. Paganism and, 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 and sort of uh, man in his unregenerate blindness. In Babylon, we have sort of religious corruption, idolatry being spread and promulgated throughout the world. In Tyre, we find commercialism as a spirit, as a philosophy, as a mantra for the world. And we're living in a Tyre age, an age where prosperity and means and, and commercial endeavors is the ruling principle of the day. And you say, well, preacher, nothing could destroy those, those you know, industrial empires. Nothing could destroy those huge companies. Nothing could destroy those corporate behemoths. But I'd remind you there was a time in history there was corporate behemoths. <laughs> and God destroyed them in a moment. And we see here in this passage not just the promise of Tyre's destruction, but the panic at Tyre's destruction. It, it, listen, when somebody as big as Tyre goes down, it affects the world. And that's what we see in verses 5 through 7. says, as at the report concerning Egypt, so shall they be sorely pained at the report of Tyre. Pass ye over to Tarshish, how ye inhabitants of the isle. Is this your joyous city, whose antiquity is of ancient days? Her own feet shall carry her afar off to sojourn. In other words, the whole world would be terrified when they learned that Tyre was destroyed. Verses 8 through 9, we learn who the person of Tyre's destruction is. You say, well, preacher, you already told me it was Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, but who let Nebuchadnezzar do it? It says in verse 8, who hath taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traffickers are the honorable of the earth. The Lord of hosts hath purposed it to stain the pride of all glory and to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Verses 10 through 11 describe the pain of Tyre's destruction. He says, pass through thy land as a river, O daughter of Tarshish. In other words, go everywhere. There is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord hath given a commandment against the merchant city to destroy the strongholds thereof. Verses 15 through 17 describe the process of Tyre's destruction. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre shall be forgotten 70 years according to the days of one king. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, just about at the same time he sacked Jerusalem, he sacked Tyre. And so the exile of, of the Judeans coincided with that same 70 years whenever, for the most of it, Nebuchadnezzar had sat on the throne. It says, After the end of 70 years shall Tyre sing as a harlot. Take in heart, go about the city, thou harlot, that hast been forgotten. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that thou mayest be remembered. And it shall come to pass after the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre. And she shall turn to her hire and shall commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world upon the face of the earth. And God, of course, did permit Tyre to be rebuilt until Alexander the Great later on destroyed it. But it's interesting when you read verse 18, because evidently, just like Egypt, there'll come a day during the Millennial Kingdom when they too will get a second chance. He says, and her merchandise and her hire shall be for holiness to the Lord. It shall not be treasured nor laid up, for her merchandise shall be for them that dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for durable clothing. It's a fascinating passage of Scripture because it reminds me of this. You say, preacher, is money wrong? No, money is not wrong uh, if we put it in the hands of the Lord. God's not against it. But understand that it's no refuge from, from the Lord. Instead, it's a resource of the Lord. And so in each of these Gentile kingdoms, we learn something, not just about what God has done, but about what God will do. And not just about what God will do, but even through the means of His character, what God is doing in our lives as well. 